It is good to be with you guys. Hopefully you guys have had an incredible week. Um, hopefully I, I'm, I'm getting used to, slowly but surely getting used to our, our weather. Um, I know that 100 degree weather is, is on its way, and uh, so I'm preparing for it. Um, but coming from a very humid place to where we are now, shade actually works, so I'm excited about that as well. Um, and uh, um, yeah, when you're in humidity, you can be, yeah, it could be 75 degrees and, and you're battling swaths. But anyway, all right, all right, I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, I'll get an email. Anyway, uh, so it is good to be with you guys this morning. Hopefully you guys have had an incredible week. Um, I'm so excited about today, and here's why. Um, God is, um, is giving us an opportunity to dive into one of his books. And I, this, this honestly is something I've been looking for. I know we've done some, some, a couple mini-series uh, for a while, and, um, and the, I, I'm excited about camping out here for about nine to ten weeks, okay? So we're not going to go anywhere. We're going to hang out in the book of Colossians for a little while. Now, before we dive into the book of Colossians, um, I wanted to kind of set it up this way. Um, I read an article. Actually, I read three different articles about one topic. And you know what I found in all three of those articles? Three differing points of view on the same topic. And, and some of you have probably understand that. You, you probably read um, many different topics about many, and, and uh, I mean, one, diff- one single topic had three points of view, and they were, I mean, they were adamant. They were actually explicit. They're like, no, you got to see it this way. And they were, they were very adamant in each of those articles. So I asked this question, why do we study the Bible? Why? Because when I read that article, those three articles on one same topic, you know what I got? I got all kinds of different, differing opinions. And the reality is, is all I wanted was the truth. I just wanted the truth. I just want, I mean, isn't that what we're looking for? I just, in this life, I just want truth. I mean, I don't want an opinion. Yes, opinions are fine. But I want to know what can I anchor my life to? What can I base my life on? What can I actually lean into and, and devour and let it devour me that will actually change me for the good? That will actually change me to become uh, uh, more of a person than I ever thought I could be. And that is one of the reasons why we study the Word of God. Now, some of you might look at the Word of God this morning and go, Joel, that's an antiquated book. It is. Uh, it, it has maybe some good wisdom, some good proverbs, uh, but but surely, Joel, you know, it's just. I mean, it was written way back when. How how can it be applicable today? It is. And some of you may even go, it's just boring. Can I just say, um, the Bible's not boring. There's two reasons why the Bible uh, might come across as boring to you. First, the person telling you about the Bible is boring, and I pray that's not this morning. Um, or second, you yourself are boring. Because when I open this, when I open this up, guess what I find? Anything but boring. I find, I find, I mean, life in, in verbal form. And, and you know why? Because this book is different than any other book you'd find at Barnes & Noble. Any, any other book that you'd find in a library. We've got a lot of people saying a lot of different words. And as good as those words may be, they fall infinitely short than what this offers you, than what this offers me. We here at Real Life Church will have a high level of love and respect for what this book has to say. And we will, and we're going to be unashamed about it. And we're going to be unapologetic about it. Because this book, if you begin to, to dive into it, this has every answer for how you are to live, why you live, and what you're supposed to live for. This, 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 this book is genuinely God's word. Look at 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy verse 3 and 16. It tells us this. It says, all, all, not some, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us, here it is, what is true, what is true. And to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. Because guess what? Um, uh, you can feel however you want about 
things going on in your life. And today you might go, my feelings are my truth. But can I say tomorrow your feelings are going to change? So how reliable are they? This, this book has truth, not truths, but truth. And it, is, it, it makes us realize what's wrong in our life. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. And isn't that what we're after? We're after the truth. I'm after the truth. It teaches us right and wrong. It teaches, teaches us the truth about life and death, heaven and hell, who we are, who we are not. And, and the, reason is, the reason why this is important is because whether you believe it or not, there is an adversary. His name is Satan. He's an accuser. He's a liar. And he will plant seeds of doubt in you every opportunity he can. He will say, no, you can't read the Bible. You, you haven't gone to seminary or you haven't gone to school. You, no, you can't pray. He will constantly feed these doubts in you. He will constantly, I mean, even from the Garden of Eden, he was throwing doubts to our first parents. Eve, did God really say not to eat of the fruit? I mean, that was his question. So even from the beginning of time, even to this day, he's constantly sowing these seeds of doubt. He's an accuser. He's a liar. So what anchors us, what tethers us to a foundation that won't be moved? As our world is constantly changing, what holds us steadfast? It's right here. It's right here. And God wants you to open it and devour it. So it can devour your heart and it can marinate in your life and it can change you in ways you, you don't even see coming. As we're going to discover here in the book of Colossians. And so I wanted to begin, that's why we're walking through the book of, uh, book of the Bible. And we will continue to here um, at Real Life Church. So let's dig into this marvelous book and see how scripture becomes our guidepost. Now when you walk into a, a book of the Bible... Just like any story, it's good to ask some, some different questions. First of all, who wrote it? It's important. Who, who penned this book? Um, the second is, is when was it written? Who, who's, who's the audience that they're writing to? And why? Why did this author write this book? So there's, there's important things to understand when you walk through any book of the Bible. You want to have some context. I mean, you don't want to just kind of gum, come into it blindly. It helps you understand what's going on. On. So, first of all, who wrote this book? Well, it tells us here at the beginning of Colossians that it was Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote this book. And he wrote to the church of Colossae. It was his seventh letter out of 14 letters. Now, if you know anything about the life of Paul, you'll quickly understand that most of the New Testament was penned by the Apostle Paul. He wrote a lot of letters. He had a lot to say, all right? He put pen to paper a lot, and God used him in powerful ways. And so he wrote, wrote this seventh letter to the church of Colossae. Now, Colossae, um, most of Paul's ministry was actually done in Ephesus, as we discover in Acts chapter 19. So Ephesus is over here. About 100 miles west is Colossae. Now, Paul was in Ephesus most of his time, and there's no indication that Paul ever went to Colossae. Okay, but he's writing this letter to this church nonetheless. And where Colossae is, if you had to actually look at a modern day map, Colossae would be like modern day Turkey. So if you're thinking geographically, where's Colossae? Where, where's this located on a map? It's actually in modern day Turkey if you're looking at a map, which is where it would be. Now, when did, when did Paul write this letter? Paul wrote around 60 AD this letter. He put pen to paper. Um, we know that because he was actually in prison in Rome at this time. So we can kind of get an idea of when he was there. And Paul, um, he, uh, he ends up writing this book um, for a number of different reasons. Okay? He, he writes this book for a number of different reasons. Um, first of all, um, how, did, how did Paul know to write this letter? I think, uh, let, me, let me answer that. Who started the church in Colossae? Well, as we'll discover here again in chapter 1, in the first 14 verses that we're going to look at, we'll understand two main characters um, were the ones that helped to found the church of Colossae. Epaphras and Philemon. Epaphras and Philemon. Now, these two guys were two um, Gentile converts from Paul's ministry in Ephesus. 
So he, Paul's in minute, you know, he's, he's like, he come and he's created this church, the Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, the church of Ephesus. And all of a sudden, um, these two guys come, they hear the word of God. They understand who Jesus is. They get radically saved. And all of a sudden they feel this burden to go back home and carry the gospel to this city of Colossae. So the church of of Colossae begins to be birthed. It begins to show. And I love that. And can I just, I'm just going to pause for a second. That's what the church does. See, the goal here is not to fill all of these seats and then hold you here. That's not the goal. We don't want to just capture everyone in here and hold you into this. My prayer, God's desire, and to fulfill the Great Commission is to not just come here and learn and grow until you die. It's to actually learn, grow, understand what it is to be a disciple, learn how to make a disciple, and then go outside these doors and go do it. And so all of a sudden, these two men, Philemon and Epaphras, go and they exactly do that. They plant in another area. They introduce the gospel in another area. And so the church of see is formed. It's beautiful. It's, it's incredible. So why? Why did Paul write this letter? Now, this is really important. Um, Rome, in 60 AD, had uh, rule over the known world. Okay, they had over 4 million plus square miles across that they, that they governed and that they ruled over. So, I mean, to give you perspective, that's like from India all the way to England. Okay, so they, they controlled, they dominated the known world. And, and, and the thing about the Romans is, um, yes, they were known for a lot of different things, but one of the things that they were known for is, was their architecture and their transit system. You know anything about the Rome? The Roman roads. Now, here's what happens. Colossae was kind of, let's imagine for a moment, Colossae was just this isolated village. You know, everyone knew everyone. Let's imagine that everyone knew everyone. Hey, Bob, it's good to see you. You're walking down and everyone knows each other's names and, and everyone speaks a similar language and, and everyone, you know, you got the baker over here and you got the, the you know, I don't know, the blacksmith, whatever they got in that day. Okay, right? They had all these people and, and everyone knew everyone and, and everyone went to the same church. They believed in the same way and, and they talked a similar language. Well, what happens is, is when um, all of a sudden, Rome starts introducing these roads. Guess what happens? So now, roads are now intersecting into this small little community we know as Colossae. You know what happens when you start to connect the world like that? All of a sudden, new ideas come into town. All of a sudden, guess what? New religions come into town. All of a sudden, new philosophies, new ideologies, new ways of thinking, new ways of living are all of a sudden begin to come into this small little community that we know as, that we know as Colossae. And you know what happens? All of a sudden, the way of living, the truth that they knew in the church of Colossae, all of a sudden started to get muddy. It started to kind of... It started, uh, all of a sudden, it's not just Jesus anymore in the church of Colossae. All of a sudden, it's Jesus plus this. Jesus plus this. And what was called syncretism began to be introduced into this city. And what syncretism is, is think of being in sync. You're taking all these ideas, all these philosophies, and you're trying to marry them all together. And so you have this, no longer it's just Christianity, it's no longer just Jesus, it's Jesus plus all of these things. Because we, we want to be tolerant, we want to be accepting, we want all, you know, and so, so we want to include all these things. And so all these things get married into this, but the moment you start introducing things into truth, the moment you start going, well, um, I see truth, but this this might look good, so let's put that in there. And then, you know what, this, this looks good over here, so let's put that in there. So we start sinking all these other things that we like rather than what is true, and then guess what you lose? You lose truth. You lose truth. Because that fractured version of truth is no longer truth. It's something less. It takes a form that is less than capable of doing anything for your life and for mine. So this is the problem that Epaphras 
shared with Paul. Now, Paul loves people and he loves, he, and is, is brokenhearted of what's going on in his city. And he's visiting Paul while in prison. And so Paul feels this burden. I've got to do something. So God leads him to pull out a pen and put pen to paper and write this letter to the church of Colossae. That is why he begins to write this. Now, there's a number of different things that he begins to introduce here that we're going to walk through. And, 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 and it's such a beautiful, beautiful book as we begin to, to walk through it. Because the truth is, is, is just like the church of Colossae was under attack by all these other things. Can I just say real life church is under attack? It's under attack. The fact that we proclaim the name of Jesus, we are under attack. I'm not going to lie to you. This is exact. Our world, um, let's say, hates us. They hate us. In fact, they don't understand us. They, they see us as narrow-minded and they see us as, as judgmental and all these different things. And the reality is, is, is I am a sinner. I, I am a hypocrite and I am judgmental. I, and, and you know what? Their argument is actually not with you and it's not with me. It's actually with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They don't like truth. You know why? Because the moment that they acknowledge that there is a absolute truth is the moment that they have a responsibility to that absolute truth. And no one wants to be responsible to a God. No one wants to be told what to do. And that's what our world talks about. That's what our world teaches. And so that's where we are. Our adversary wants to close our doors. Our adversary wants to shut your mouths. Our adversary wants to silence everything that's going on in this place. And I'm here to tell you, we're not doing it. We're not doing it. We're not. We are going to stand on God's word. So let's see what God's word has to say to you and to me this morning through this incredible book, the book of Colossians. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. If you don't, it's going to be up here on the screens. But look at Colossians chapter 1 as we look at these first 14 verses as God begins to align us with who he is. Chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This letter is from Paul. We learned that. Chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. We're writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people which come from the confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. And this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Just as it changed your lives from the day that you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras. We, our, he's the one that started the church. Our beloved co-worker, he is Christ's faithful servant. And he is helping us on your behalf. He's told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all of his glorious power to you, uh, so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He's enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Heavenly father, we ask that you would visit us this morning. We ask that your word would plant into our hearts in a deep, real, rich way. God, I pray that we would not um, 
turn, uh, turn off our ears, God, that we would not close our eyes, but God, that we would be ever attentive, ever receptive for what you alone want to speak to us. God, I pray if there's here that someone here this morning that is struggling. I pray, God, that if there's someone here that is not even sure why they're here, I pray, God, that you would introduce yourself to them through your word this morning. God, we love you, we praise you, and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I mentioned before, Paul is actually pinning these words while in a jail cell, okay? Uh, I, I, I mean, what a ridiculous situation. He's in jail, Epaphras comes, shares with him what's going on, and so he pulls out a pen and paper, and he starts writing. I mean, it's incredible. He's doing ministry even inside a jail wall. It's, it's incredible. And, and so he begins to write this letter. And these first 14 verses, as we'll discover, he's actually kind of encouraged. He's actually kind of encouraging in these first 14. He's exhorting. He's actually speaking things over um, the church in this moment. He's like, man, I've heard a lot of things about you. Good things. Great things. And I, and I want to... I wanna, Reemphasize and, and share those things. And so he begins to do that. And, and I think these first, th- first 14 verses, I think there's three distinct areas that God wants us to pull out this morning. Now, understand this. While we walk through the book of Colossians or any book of the Bible, we're never going to be exhaustive. My prayer is that our time together might spur you on to dive deeper into God's word. I encourage you, read the book of Colossians on your own. If you're relying on um, Sunday morning to help you become all that God wants you to be, to become the disciple, I'm, I'm here to tell you, it's insufficient. It's not enough. You've got to go home, take the opportunity to see what God's word has to say to you, what he wants to, to bear and bore in you. And that only happens when we begin to unfold it on our own outside of a Sunday morning sort of setting. So uh, I just want to encourage you. But, but Paul's pinning this and he's encouraged on one side and he is, he's concerned on another is why he's pinning this letter. And, and these three distinct things that, were, that are worth pointing out are this. The three distinct things in, verse, in, chapter, in chapter one through these first 14 verses are this. Thanksgiving to God, prayer and identity. Thanksgiving to God, prayer and and identity. I think he drives, again, George, are going to discover there's other things in these first 14 verses, but I believe this morning, God wants us to pull these three things out. So I'm not saying that this is exhaustive. I'm just saying that these are the things that I believe God wants us to pull out and put before us this morning. So look at this first with me, this first distinct area that I think God wants to point out, this area of thanksgiving, thanksgiving to God. Now, we love the day Thanksgiving coming around. It's, it's, we, we, we literally look forward to eating turkey, getting tryptophan in our, you know, in our body, and then we take a nap in the afternoon. You know what I'm saying? And, and, you know, and, and maybe, the, maybe the lions might win. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Whatever. Um, it, it, <laughs> um, but the reality is, is, is Thanksgiving to God is a vital area of us as a church and as an individual. Here's why. Paul gives uh, in verse 3 and in verse 11 and 12. Look at verse 3 with me again. It says this. We always pray for you. And here it is. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if, if Epaphras started this church, if Philemon started this church, the world would say, why aren't you thanking that guy? I mean, he's done all the heavy lifting. He's done all the work. But Paul understood and understands, just as why I want to help us as a church understand this morning, that when Paul is going, I am not thanking a man in this moment. I am thanking the God of the universe that can do things that man cannot do. And you know what man cannot do? Just about everything. (laughs) Just about everything. I would love to be able to fix my wife. You know what I discovered after um, about 30 minutes of being married? I can't do that. I can't do that. But you know what? She can't do that in me. You you know, I would would love to be able to, to pull someone that is suffering 
out of that and, and out of addiction out of that. I'd love to step into every marriage and repair it myself. I'd love to step into every child's life and say, stop doing that. Stop. No, don't do don't, that. Stop. That's, that, that path that you're on, it's going to go real bad. And every parent in here feels that way because you don't want your children to walk down that. And so uh, Paul is, is literally going, um, when I thank God, it is my way of declaring to God that I can't do it. I thank you for what you alone do, for what you alone can do and will do and continue to do even this day. I am thankful. I thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the work, all the life change, all the addiction, all the marriages, all the gospel proclaimed, all of that is because of God himself, not because of us. Not because of us. Paul just happened to be invited into this moment to be obedient. And that's where we, we just get to be obedient. We get to be invited into something bigger than us. And so Paul's going, thank you. Thank you, Father for what you alone have done. Thank you, God, for how you have moved. You continue to change hearts. Thank you, God, for what you, how, how, how lives are being changed. I, I pray that over our church. It has nothing to do with me. In fact, it has absolutely less than nothing to do with me. It has less than nothing to do with the staff. It has everything to do about God meeting you where you are and changing each and every part about you. Because he's He's interested in your life. He's, he's, constantly, he's constantly going, hey, you know what, that, that area in, in Paul's life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and change that. Let's, let's change that. Okay, I'm going to throw him in an experience. Because you know why? Because God sees Paul's life. God sees Joel's life. God sees uh, the elders of this church's life and the staff's life and your life. And he sees it from the moment that you were born all the way to the end. And he knows what this final, this final image, this final picture of who you are to be actually looks like. And so you don't even, you, you don't even understand. You don't understand why you're walking through the things that you would, that, that you would, uh, no one would want to walk through some of the things you're walking through. No one would want to walk through the things that, some of the things I walked through. I wouldn't wish them on my worst enemy, but yet God introduced those things in my life to bring me to a place that I wouldn't be had he not. And so you know what I do? Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for working in me. Thank you for doing that which you can't. And so instead of, instead of getting angry at God, why don't you try, a different, try, try some different language and start thanking him? Because you know what? He can snuff out our life in a moment. So don't think that he's not all powerful. Don't think that he can't take that from us. I want you to understand that we are thankful to God that he gives us our very next breath. But God loves you. He loves me. And he wants more for you. And so when he works and moves... Thank you, God. Thank you for what you're doing. James 1.17 says this. James 1.17 says this. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. It comes down from him and him alone. It is, it is the church dec declaration saying, I'm incapable of doing anything. I love this quote from Andrew Murray. If you, if you know any saints and, and uh, men, that, men and women that have gone before um, Andrew Murray was an incredible man of God, and he said this statement. He said, Thanksgiving will draw our hearts to God and keep us engaged with Him. It, it will take our attention from ourselves, as it should, and give the Spirit room in our hearts. It's not about me, it's about Him. It's not about what I can do, it's about what He has done and continues to do. Thank you, God. I declare that you are my all in all. The second area... The second area that I think worth noting here in these first 14 verses is prayer. Prayer. Uh, real life church is not just going to be a, a church that prays. We will be a praying church. We will pray and we will stand against the gates of hell and we will pray and we will ask God to move in the hearts and lives of families and we will pray. Because you know what? I can't, I can't tear down those walls. I can't rip those obstacles that are 
I can't get, I can't take out generational sins in your life and rip them away. I can't tear down spiritual strongholds in this city. I cannot, but I know the one who can and he hears me. So I call on him and he does it. He will, he will tear down those walls. He's going to tear them down, but he he invites us in. He says, Hey, and here's the lies of the adversary. You can't pray. You can't pray. You can't, you, you can't do it. It, you're, you're too busy. You got things going on. And guess, guess what? There's a way of going about praying and you're just not practiced enough. Hey, does everyone, can everyone talk in here? Can everyone talk? Okay. Everyone can talk. You know, it's, uh, guys talk uh, 25,000 words. Women say, you know, 50,000 words. So guys are done when they get home. You know, I mean, they're like, I can't, I'm done. I'm done, done my 25,000, you know, and, and the wife is only halfway there. Okay. All right. So uh, the reality is, is every single one of us can talk. You know what that means? It means you can talk to God. And prayer is nothing more than talking to God. So talk to God. And 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 it doesn't have to go through forms. You don't have to, to find a, a padded knee knee you know seat or, or something like that or go through certain motions. Just open your eyes, close your eyes, get on your knees, stand up, lay down, uh, walk around the neighborhood, whatever you need to do, just talk to God. Talk to him. That's prayer. I mean, I, I, I mean, last week I talked about blesseveryhome.com. I encourage you to go on that. It's a great way to be accountable to pray for the, the people in your neighborhood. Blesseveryhome.com. Our church is a part of that. I want you to be a part of that. It actually sends reminders of people that you can pray for. People around you that you can begin to pray for and uphold in prayer. You may not know them. That's okay. They may be your next invite to come to the neighbor's table. But pray for them. Pray for the, the, the government in our city. Pray for the government in our state. Pray for the leaders in our area, the, the, the businesses in our area. Pray for the, the people that, that walk around this church, around this place. Pray, church. If we want to see God move, we have to pray. We've got to pray. And I, and it starts, here it is, it starts with me. It starts with the staff. It starts with us elders. And I'm here to tell you right now, we're on our faces. We want to see God work. We're going to ask God to do things that he's never done here before. But understand what that invitation means. It means that all of a sudden, God's glory is going to begin to fall in ways. And the responsibility is going to be on you to say, hey, I better open my mouth and share the love of Jesus with someone that walks through these doors. I, I, begin, I need to, to get involved in the, in the ugliness of not life because discipleship happens in the context of relationship. We are connected in lives on lives. And God is calling us into that. So pray. Acts 4.31. I love what, he, what Luke says in Acts he says this, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I want this place to shake. I want this place to shake. And it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke the word of God boldly. But it wasn't until after they prayed. You, you want to be different? You want your life to change. You want your, uh, your intimacy with, with Jesus Christ to be, to, 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 to come to a new level. That's going to come after you pray. After you pray. After we pray, we begin to see rooms shaken. After we pray, we see walls torn down. After we pray and we engage in that constant way, all of a sudden God moves. That's what happens. And I, I love how Paul brings attention to this. Our brothers and sisters, are they on your heart? Are you praying for them? Do you pray for this church constantly? Paul says that he did. We always pray. Verse 3, we always pray for you. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We always pray. We have not stopped. It's just part of our DNA. It's who we are. We're constantly interceding. We're crying out to God. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, the best style of prayer is that which cannot be called anything else but a cry. Oh God, God move, move in my marriage, move in my children's life. God, please move in my church, move in my family, move in my neighborhood. God, move, move, work. Holy Spirit, do which I cannot do. Be what I cannot be, but you through me, may I be obedient. Please, God, pray, for, pray that way. Plead to who God is. The third and final area 
is identity. Identity. I think Paul asks this, speaks this over himself, Epaphras, and the church. Paul speaks out identity in these first 14 verses. And, and here it is. Why is identity so important? See, if I asked you who you are, I might get a, a collection of answers. Well, I am a, I'm a worker at NASA. I am a mechanical engineer. A lot of the time we identify who we are by what we do. At least the men do, right? I am, I do this. So therefore, I am this. Uh, and, 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 and sometimes women do the same. And, or, or sometimes women identify by, according to their family or, or different ways. And so we begin to identify in these different ways. But identity is important. It's how you see yourself. It's how you live out your life a lot of the time. My identity is important. And Paul understood this. And so he begins to speak this out in this letter. I'm going to speak this out over myself, Epaphras, and the church. Look at verse 1 with me. He says this, This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus of Christ Jesus. That's an, identi- that's an identity statement. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul knows who he is. I mean, think about the security of when you know who you are. There's no, there's no shaken identity that you know exactly who you are. And everything that comes with that identity. And, and then he goes in verse 7 and he says the same thing about Epaphras. He says, you learned about the good news from Epaphras. Our beloved co-worker. Here it is. He is Christ's faithful servant. And is helping us on our behalf. So he speaks these two moments of identity. But then he starts talking about the church. He goes, hey man, I've heard some great things about you. I've heard some incredible things about you. And the things that I've known and, and I've heard and Epaphras is, is sharing me all these things and I want, to, I want to celebrate that. I see the identity that you have found in Jesus Christ and I recognize it and I celebrate it and I want to give glory to God about it. This is incredible. Identity is so valuable. Now, why is identity, before I, before I dive into that part, why is identity valuable? Because if you don't have identity, you know what happens? Um, bad things happen. Dangerous things happen for the life of a believer. When you don't know who you are, then everyone, including the world, is going to define who you are. And guess what you begin to do? You begin to believe it about yourself. You begin to accept it about yourself. There's a book by the name uh, called Witnesses, and it's a compilation, a collection of short stories by men and women that have walked through the Jewish uh, the Jewish concentration camps, the Jewish, the Nazi concentration camps, the communist concentra- um, concentration camps. And so um, this book um, has a number of different stories, but there's one in particular by the name, by the, by a man by the name of Walter. And Walter was in one of these camps. And this is what he said. He said, do you know the number one goal of all the Nazis, the number one goal of all the Nazis who ever came into the concentration camps, the number one goal was to completely destroy, devour, demoralize, and destroy every ounce of identity about the person. That was their number one goal. I'm going to destroy everything. I'm going to demoralize them. And the reason why they did is because if they destroyed their identity, then they would have no motivation to incite revolution. All of a sudden, they wouldn't rebel. They would resign to live the remainder of their life in status quo misery. Because they don't know who they are. And so this is what Walter's story recounts as he looks back. This is what Walter says. He says, right after arriving to the concentration camp, we were herded into a room where all civil clothes were taken. We were stripped naked from head to toe. Nothing. We earthly possessions were all gone. We were shaved. All of our hair was removed. All of our bodily hair was removed. And it went so fast. Everything. Don't you think for a moment that if you're on shaky ground this morning that our adversary won't strip it away in a moment. Strip your identity, my identity. This is what happened in this concentration camp. It happened so fast. Everything was taken from him, he says. And and in fact, all the work was not done by the guards. 
It was actually done by other prisoners to add greater humiliation to what was going on. So all of a sudden, the the guards looking on, watching everything that happened, they would then be ushered into taking a shower where then afterward they were given tattered clothes and then tattooed with a number. This was supposed to be my name, he said. I had no name anymore. All I had was a number. That was all that was it. See, the Nazis were effectively effective at distorting and destroying identity of every single one of our prisoners. And I think that's the ongoing attack in our church today. God is slowly but sh- or God, Satan is slowly but surely stripping our identity. He's slowly but surely. And it's not, it's not just grandiose. It's not some, hey, I want you to do. No, it's just this subtle, slowly taking away small things. Slowly beginning to change the way we think about certain things. Slowly beginning to reclassify what truth used to be. Slowly but surely. And in doing so, you know what he's doing? He's stripping your name. He's stripping your identity. And you know what happens when we lose our identity? You become complacent and you begin to become compliant. Complacent and compliant. We become apathetic. Oh, and all of a sudden Satan goes, oh yeah, listen, I don't need you, just just be comfortable where you are. And then Satan goes, okay, I need you to move over here. Okay, I'll move over here. Oh, I need you to think this way. Okay, I'll, I'll think this way. Yeah, that's not that big of a deal. And slowly but surely, we, no lo- we lose our name. We no, we, we no longer know our identity and we end up just becoming a number, becoming a number in this world. That's the danger So Paul begins to speak identity over the church of Colossae. This is what he says. He goes, I heard about your faith. I heard about your love. And it comes from a couple different things. There's three things, three identifying attributes, three identifying promises of what comes in. And here it is. You ready? And I've got to hurry. Here it is. Hope-filled identity. Hope-filled identity. When we are, when our lives, our identity is found in Jesus Christ, you have hope unlike ever before. This is what it says. General Douglas MacArthur said this. A man with hope is a man that doesn't quit and is hard to kill. A hope that I've been forgiven, that I have been redeemed. A hope that, that guess what? My life doesn't end here. It actually starts here. A hope that I can be unmoved despite how the world flips upside down. Uh, That's a hope that Jesus Christ alone offers to us. That's the hope that I can be unmoved despite the storms. This is the hope that we hold on to. I'm not going to be defeated. I'm not going to be easily killed. I'm going to stand until Jesus returns or, or he takes me home. This is, my, this is our hope in Jesus. This is the hope that, that the identity, this is an identity issue, guys. That's why I keep talking about being, not doing. Who are we? I am a follower of the Most High God. Is that what can be said about you? Is that what can be said about me? Identity is so vital. And and when we have that, guess what? 2 Corinthians 4.16 makes sense to us. This is what it says. We do not lose heart. We don't. I, I don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, and it is, it's fallen apart, and our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's a hope that I'm looking forward to. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary. But the things that are unseen, those are eternal. I got a hope in a savior who did, who said the things he said, did the things that he did, conquered sin, conquered death, and invited me into it. And I'm thankful to be there. And he's offering that to every single one of us. It's a hope-filled identity. The second, the second and third thing, heaven-bound identity, expectant identity. When you look at verse five again, it says a confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. Look at the finish line, family. Look at the finish line. You know where the finish line is? It's in heaven in glory with God and he waits for you. That's, that's, that's looking at the finish line. It's not just looking at the next step or the next obstacle. It's going, my life can be absolute a train wreck and the world is destroying me. 
I've got someone and I've got a place waiting for me that's so much greater than this world. I'm expectant that I have a home that does not, that does not reside here. I love, I love exactly what, what um, Hebrews 13 says. It says this, um, for this world is not our permanent home. We're looking forward to a home yet to come. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus Christ a continual sacrifice. My home's not here. It's not my permanent home. My eyes are fixed on the end game, on the goal, on the one who waits for me, the one who loves me, the one who died for me, the one who gave me more than I could earn for myself. He waits for you. When we, our lives are found in Christ, you have a hope-filled heart. You've got an expectant, heaven-bound heart, and you also have a fruit-bearing identity. You want to see life change? You want to see things move in your heart? Then guess what? Look at verses 9 and 10. I love what, I love what he says here. In verses 9 and 10, he says this, We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. So all of a sudden, his identity is placed upon you. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow. When our life is found in Christ, guess what, guys? You're going to change. That's what happens. When your life, your identity is in Christ alone, you change. We're different. We're no longer the same. And he's very clear about that, which is why this whole, this whole series is called Dare to Live. He is daring you to trust him, daring you to find your identity in him, daring you to be more than you thought you could be. Paul does an incredible job and he's speaking identity over us this morning and he's going, it's not about your name, it's about his name and he claims you as his own. I'm going to end with this one video clip and it's going to, if you guys have ever watched The Chosen, I, I encourage you, if you haven't, take a, take a, take a look at it. It's for this, this particular clip is an interaction between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And Jesus and Mary Magdalene, you know what? Mary Magdalene was a broken person, prostitute, possessed. I mean, the whole deal. She was at the end of her life, the end of her rope. And all of a sudden, she thinks that she is just another number. And then she has an interaction with Jesus. So turn your attention to the screen and watch this. Mary. Mary of Magdala. says the Lord who created you and he who formed you fear not for I have redeemed you I have called you by name you Jesus Christ called you by name. He knows you. Because the reality is, is we're all Mary Magdalene. We're all broken. And then he comes at that one specific moment in time. And he calls you by name. And he says, you're mine. You're mine. It's no longer you, but me. It's no longer your righteousness, because that's filthy rags. It's now me giving you my righteousness. 
It's no longer your performance. It is now you receiving what God will do through you. It's no longer you fixing you or fixing others. It's about God repairing that which only he can repair, the broken, the wounded. God calls you by name for those that are in Christ. There's an intimacy, there's a love that far surpasses what this world has to offer. Stop identifying yourself by your sexual identity or your sexual preference. Stop identifying yourself by political agenda or political affiliation. Stop identifying yourself by how much you make or what you drive, by by what you have in your bank account. Stop identifying yourself by all these other things that the world say are important. They are here for a moment and then gone. The only thing that lasts are the things that are unseen and they are Jesus Christ. And he's looking at you and he's reaching out with his hands and he's going, you're mine. You belong to me. Stop running. Start surrendering. Start submitting and being the child that you need to be. I will do more with your life, son and daughter, than you ever could. That's what Jesus Christ offers. I pray that if you don't know him, that this morning you will not turn a blind eye, you will not close off your ear, but you would respond to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning. The band's getting ready to play. And as they sing, uh, I want to invite you. There's going to be people up here to my left and to my right. Please don't wait. This is a decision that no one else can make but you. But you. I don't care if you're with family. I don't care if if you're with friends. Jesus Christ wants to claim you this morning as his own. He wants to put his identity all over you because he loves you. So I want to ask that you stand with me this morning. Stand as we kind of close our time. And I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I want you to understand that Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, sees you right where you are. He sees you right where, is, right where you are. He wants to claim you as his own. Maybe you're just far from God. Maybe you, you've just, you know that you're a child of God, but you've, you've lost the understanding of how God has empowered you. See, when you have the name of of Jesus as your identity, when you have the person of God as your identity, you know what? There's such authority and there's power in that. I mean, I remember I was, I I was with my dad and my dad was at a, uh, he was a commanding officer of a, of a mobile howitzer unit. And he had a training exercise that he invited um, his two twins, myself and my twin brother out to. And I remember I went out there And all of a sudden, I was in an area that I probably shouldn't have been during the training exercise. And we were over there, and a bunch of the the military guys that were over there, they're going, you shouldn't be here. Why are you here? You need to leave right now. And then all of a sudden, uh, their eyes lifted above Nathan and I to my dad, who was standing behind us. And he looks at him, and he goes, these are my sons. That's all he said. These are my sons. And understand this, in that moment, those men, they changed their tune real quick and they're like, what can we do for you? You belong here at that point because you know why? Because you're the son of the commanding officer and you know what? You belong here because you're a child of God. He comes over you and he says, these are my sons. These are my daughters. And I'm going to do in you what you can't do. Don't run away from it. Step into this. Father, I pray right now in this moment that if there's someone that's far from you or doesn't know you, that they would step in, that they would have a conversation. Jesus, they would surrender their life to you. That they would understand that that you love them more than life itself. That you died for them. That while we were yet sinners, you died. You came. You placed your identity upon us. And I pray that we'd step into that moment even now. If someone needs prayer, I pray that they would come. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you alone do. Thank you for the book of Colossians. We praise you for what you're going to do and how you're going to lead us into understanding the supremacy of Jesus next week. We pray and pray and pray and pray because that's what you've called us to do. We thank you for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name we pray.